going to be very important to have the Bible in front of you so that you can check that what I say is in keeping with the Bible, God's Word. It's 1 Corinthians 14, Prophecy in Tongues, it's page 1154. And you may be surprised to see my wife in the pulpit with me. And by way of introduction this evening, she's going to say something to us first of all. Please do pay attention. Thank you very much. Two questions. Two questions. One, did anyone understand what my wife just said? Secondly, was she speaking in tongues? So, get everybody's attention. Did anyone understand what she was saying? I would be absolutely amazed if anyone understood what Nita just said to you. And because of that, you don't know what she said. She might have been giving you some instruction, warning you that there's a fire in the building and it's time to get out, encouraging you that if you stand at the door afterwards, we'll give you a five-pound note each, or she may just have been saying hello to you. The reason why I'm pretty sure that no one understood it is because she was speaking in a language called Izere, which is spoken in Nigeria. And even if you come from Nigeria... There are 400 different languages in Nigeria and this particular one is spoken only by 80,000 people in Plateau State in Nigeria and a few strange foreigners, uh, two of whom are in the congregation. <laughs> so I don't think you would have understood unless you were given some kind of supernatural gift of interpretation. This leads to the second question. Was this an example of what we read about in 1 Corinthians 14 when Paul says he who speaks in a tongue was neither speaking in a tongue? Uh, Paul comments in verse 10, he says, Undoubtedly, there are all sorts of languages in the world. You may be interested to know that at the latest count there are something like 6,700 languages, different languages, spoken in the world today. So, when the Christians in Corinth were speaking in tongues, were they speaking in real languages that they'd never learned? Maybe supernaturally some of them spoke the Izeri language from Nigeria without knowing what language it was, even though they'd never heard of it and probably never heard of Nigeria. Now, some people think this was the case. They rightly point out that the word tongue, that is this, and the word language are both the same word in the original Greek in which this was written. So if you look at the NIV in front of you, you'll see that where it says, speaking in a tongue in verse 2, there's a footnote there, and it says, or another language. 
also in verses 4, 13, 14, 19, 26, 27. And many people point out that the main reference to speaking in tongues, this expression, speaking in tongues, is found in the book of Acts. We looked at the book of Acts, this chapter, this morning, if you're here. When the Holy Spirit was poured out on the waiting disciples on the day of Pentecost, we read that they began to speak in other languages as the Spirit enabled them. And the result was that the crowd of people who were present there, gathered from many parts of the Roman Empire, could understand them in their own languages. This is what it says in Acts chapter 2. Listen carefully. The people said, Are not these men who were speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in his own native language? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both converts and Jews, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. So some people say when you see the same expression in the Bible, it must mean the same thing in 1 Corinthians. Because this is the only other place outside of Acts where there's any reference to speaking in tongues. That is what some people think. However, and I hope you've come to think, by the way, this evening, you need to concentrate hard, all right? It's been a long day for some of you, but concentrate hard here. When we come to 1 Corinthians 14, we find that although this same expression is used, as in Acts, the situation and effects are dramatically different. Because when the church came together in Corinth, just as all of us speak English, some better than others, different accents and dialects, when the Christians came together in Corinth, they all spoke the same language, Greek. But instead of Greek, when they met together, it says, everyone was speaking in tongues or other languages which are incomprehensible to all the rest of the congregation, just as Nita was at the beginning of the service. And outsiders who happen to be present, instead of us on the day of Pentecost saying, how is it that we hear the word of God in our own language, actually said, these people are mad. They're crazy. Incomprehensible. And this leads many people, therefore, to conclude that speaking in tongues in Corinth was different from speaking in tongues in the book of Acts. Everybody's still with me at this point. Just, look, just smile, at least indicate that we're still together at this point. Right. And what people think is that what they spoke was not a human language, but some kind of spirit-inspired speech in which the speaker communicated directly with God, spirit to spirit, as it were, without understanding even himself what was being said, because Nietzsche obviously understood the language because we studied it for several years when we lived in Nigeria. Some people think, this is what Paul is referring to. If you've got your Bible there, just turn back the previous page, 1 Corinthians 13, where Paul says, if I speak in the tongues of men, and of angels. And some people say, there are two kinds of languages. The languages of men, human languages, and the languages of angels, which are radically different. 
the use of ecstatic speech, that is people speaking ecstatically in non-human kind of language, was common in Corinth in the mystery religions. That were, the city of Corinth was full of, of temples and, and idols, places of worship. There was nothing unique, in fact still today in many parts of the world, in many religions, people speak in tongues, that is they speak ecstatically in a language or, or with phrases and syllables that they have not learnt. And it suggested therefore that this kind of practice had been carried over and Christianized in Corinth. And was a particular issue there, and that after Paul had left Corinth, these few years later when he wrote this letter, it had become the practice in Corinth. Whatever the case, what is absolutely clear is that the Christians in Corinth had elevated this gift of speaking in tongues, languages, above everything else. It was at the top of their spiritual wish list. If you wanted to prove you were really spiritual, at the top of the tree, in touch with God, you spoke in tongues. Why? You were speaking heaven's language. Speaking like the angels. Surely you had arrived. Heaven on earth. But Paul tells them in this letter, they've got their priorities wrong. That's why we've seen this again and again. This is actually the 22nd in this series. You can listen to them on the, uh, you can get tapes for them if you're interested or listen to them on the uh, website, on our, on our website, the chapel website. But again and again, this is why we've chosen this title, Keeping First Things First. They've got things out of proportion. they put things first that shouldn't have been first. And here in 1 Corinthians 14, in the reading we read together, the first 25 verses, Paul compares and contrasts the gift of tongues with another spiritual gift, which he calls the gift of prophecy, and we'll come to that in a moment, which he says should be their priority rather than tongues, should be at the top of their spiritual wish list when they meet together in the name of Jesus. Now, this is a very controversial and divisive issue. So let's try and look at what he says and what he doesn't say and let's ask God to help us to be as objective as we can because so often we come to this with our own filters and, and, and bias, bias and, that we feed everything through and I've tried to do that as I've read it and studied it and prayed over it uh, this week. It doesn't mean you'll agree with me at the end but I hope it'll help you further forward. So let's first of all just put it in a much bigger context for those who haven't been here in the past. As we've seen in our series 1 Corinthians 14 is part of an extended discussion in this letter that Paul wrote that begins with chapter 12. Chapters 12, 13 and 14 are Paul writing about this whole issue of spiritual matters. Uh, look at the context then in chapter 12 verses 1 to 3. This is where he begins, where he starts on this subject. He says, now about spiritual gifts, in fact we saw that the word gift is not there. He's literally saying, about spiritual issues things concerning the Spirit. Brothers, I don't want you to be ignorant. You know that you were pagans. Somehow or other you were influenced and led astray to mute idols. He says, listen, this is your background. Be careful then, when your background, that it doesn't influence you in the present. So look what he says. Therefore I tell you that no one who is speaking by the Spirit of God says Jesus be cursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Now, notice the focus. The focus is on speaking. You see that? No one can say. No one can speak. 
The Christians in Corinth, he says, remember, you used to worship dumb idols. But he says, although these idols are lifeless, demonic powers can speak through them and use them as a front. So be very careful in your worship when you carry over your background that this kind of thing does not influence you. Now, how do you tell? You tell by what a person says. So how could you tell whether a worshipper was speaking under the influence of a demon or under the influence of the Holy Spirit? Only by the content of what the person said. If the person confessed that Jesus is Lord, then he's inspired by the Holy Spirit. So it's vitally important to understand what is being said. Because you didn't know what Nita said. She could have been saying heresy. It's important, therefore, to understand what is being said. And this especially applies to the issue of speaking in tongues. Because if someone from this background stands up and says something, how do you know what they're saying? They might be speaking against Christ or for Christ. You need to know. And Paul is saying to the Corinthians, rather than the gift of tongues being top of the list, it is but one of many gifts. And when it happens, you always need the counterpart of someone to interpret what has been said so that you know the content of what it means. So look at the end of chapter 12 now. We're coming to the passage itself. Verse 27, he says, Now about the body of Christ, each one of you has a part in it. God has appointed all these different gifts. And then at the end he says, verse 29, Are all apostles, the way it's written in the original language, the answer every time is definitely not, of course not, all right? Are all apostles? No. Are all prophets? No. Are all teachers? No. Do all work miracles? No. Do all have gifts of healing? No. Now here's the point that he comes to last of all, because he's going to focus on it. Do all speak in tongues? No. Do all interpret? No. But, two things. Eagerly desire the greater gifts, and I will show you the most excellent way. Now the most excellent way is the way of love. And that's the great chapter 13. Paul says, whatever gift you have, if there's no love, it's a waste of time. The most excellent way. And now in the opening verses, now we're into chapter 14, we're nearly there. He begins the chapter by reminding them of the theme of chapter 13. Look at verse verse 1. Follow the way of love, chapter 13, and eagerly desire spiritual gifts, especially the gift of prophecy. Christians are, he says, to follow the way of love. Literally, it's a word used of pursuing someone. It means going for it. It means a hunter running after his prey. He says, go for love, that's the important way, and seek the greater gifts, which in this case is the gift of prophecy. Now, the reason he says that prophecy is a greater gift than tongues is not because of its essence. Both are gifts of God, the Holy Spirit, as we saw in chapter 12. No, why it's greater is because it's of greater benefit to those who receive it within the congregation of God's people. Whether speaking in tongues in Corinth was a real language or not, and frankly, we do not know, and we're very likely ever to, unlikely ever to know, let me simply say, by way of passing, there have been studies by a famous linguist called William Samarin from the University of Toronto, recorded classical, modern tongue-speaking in various Pentecostal churches. 
um, and analyze them linguistically. If you're a linguist, as Nietzsche and I claim to be, you can do this fairly easily. Uh, and he said that none of the ones that he recorded were human language. They were linguistically, human linguistically nonsense. That doesn't mean it's not a gift. All he's saying is it's not real language. There are occasional anecdotal reports of people speaking, usually to witness to somebody in a language that they have not learnt before. But normally in modern tongue speaking, normally people are not speaking human languages. Let me say again, that doesn't mean it's not genuine. All I'm saying is it's probably not a language. But whatever the case, whatever the case, it's important that people understand what is being said. Even the speaker in Corinth couldn't understand what was being said unless they had the gift of interpretation. Prophecy, on the other hand, is spoken in a language that everyone can understand. It was just, in Corinth, it would have been Greek. In our church, it's English of a kind. So everyone could understand, and it was of immediate benefit, therefore, to the people in the church. And Paul identifies in these verses two different groups of people who benefit and the different effects that prophecy has on them. And that's really what I want to look at this evening as we, we come to the main part of this. The benefits of prophecy then over and against tongues. And we'll come to the first uh, 19 verses. The first benefit is this. Benefit one, believers are built up. Paul makes several contrasts here between a person speaking in a tongue and a person who prophesies. Look what he says about a person who speaks in a tongue. First of all, he says the person speaking in a tongue is speaking to God, not to men and women who are present. Supremely, he says, that person is speaking, as it were, spirit to spirit with God. It's the language of prayer and praise. He even speaks later about singing. Addresses God, not, not man. What he says is not understandable to anyone. He says in verse 2, he utters mysteries with his spirit. The word mystery means something hidden which God has chosen to reveal and make known. But if a person speaks the mystery in a tongue, then the mystery remains a mystery because no one understands it. And although the tongue speaker is edified, is built up, is helped by using this gift, nobody else present is. In contrast then, a person who prophesies, he says, speaks to men and women, not to God, directly. The person who prophesies is clearly understood by everyone present, because they all speak the same language. And thirdly, most importantly, the person who prophesies edifies or builds up the church. Now, the church here, of course, is not a building. The church means a gathered group of Christians who meet together in the name of Jesus. In chapter 12, he compared them to a body and said that all the different members were like body parts with different gifts. Now, when he comes to this chapter, he changes the picture and he says, the picture shifts to that of a building. The word edifies is literally to build a house. And we learn that prophecy, rather than tongues, is the best material for building the house, for edifying the church. Now notice again the whole principle is using. He's saying, which is the way of love? Is it to use a gift that only benefits me? Or is the way of love, surely, to use a gift that will benefit everybody present? 
I mean, Nietzsche and I don't speak the language very well, but I could have given this whole sermon maybe in Isere. You'd have gone out of here absolutely zonked, thinking what a waste of time. But I might have been blessed by it. Now, let's talk a little bit about what prophecy is, all right? As with tongues, we can't be absolutely sure what prophecy is. Most people, when you say prophecy, think it's something to do with foretelling the future. You know, a prophet foretells what's going to happen that hasn't happened already. Uh, And while that may be included, prophecy was primarily, in the Old Testament as well, if you look at the Old Testament prophets, prophecy was primarily foretelling, not foretelling. It was speaking God's word with authority to a particular situation or person. It's not the formal gift of a prophet. The New Testament in Ephesians talks about foundational gifts, apostles and prophets. Those are foundations that are laid once. But this is the gift of speaking God's word into a particular situation. What do you say? What will it be like? Well, we learn in verse 3, three characteristics of what it's like. First of all, strengthening. The same word as edify, makes a church and Christians strong. Secondly, encouragement. The word used there is the same word used of the Holy Spirit in John's Gospel. The paraclete literally means somebody who comes alongside to help you. When you speak a word from God, it can be a word of encouragement where God comes alongside a person and speaks a particular word to your particular situation. And thirdly, comfort. A word used of helping people who are grieving or people who are in distress or people who need help of some kind. In contrast to the person who prophesies, Paul asks, what good will it be for the Corinthians? He says, look, if I come and speak to you in a tongue, the answer is none. For a revelation, or knowledge, or prophecy, or a word of instruction, must carry meaning. And look at the pictures he uses. He says, this even applies to musical instruments. Think of a flute or a harp. They've got to play a distinct tune if people are to gain pleasure from it. If everybody in here didn't read the music, they were reading the music, weren't you? Yes. If everybody in the band just played their own thing and discordant notes, I know there are some composers who do this, but it sounds like a cacophony to me. It doesn't make any sense at all. You've got to hear the tune and you get... It's just nice to hear the different instruments playing this evening, isn't it? He says, what about a trumpet? If you blow a trumpet in a battle, you've got to know and hear the note clearly. If you don't, you won't know when to advance or when to retreat. And he says, if you want to communicate with someone else, it must be in a language that other people can understand. Otherwise, he says, you'd just be foreigners. Look at, the, look at verse 10. He says, uh, sorry, verse 11. If then I do not grasp the meaning of what someone is saying, I'm a foreigner to the speaker. It's a very interesting word here. The, the word here is the word barbaros, from which we get barbarian. And a barbarian is not a rugby team. A barbarian is, is a literal word, one of those words that sounds like it, it is, bar-bar. And it said, if you didn't understand someone's language, you said, oh, they just sound like they're saying bar-bar-bar-bar-bar all the time. And he says, if you hear someone speaking, they just sound like barbarians. Don't understand the word they're talking about. Meaningless syllables. So Paul repeats the point he's emphasizing. So it is with you, verse 12. Since you're eager to have spiritual gifts, Try to excel in gifts that build the church up, that will strengthen, encourage, help fellow Christians. 
Ask God to give you gifts that will help other people rather than selfishly and self-indulgently like the Corinthians were doing, looking for gifts that will only benefit you. Some people have suggested that prophecy is the same as preaching. However, while preaching may and should include God's word spoken with authority to people, it, it shouldn't be limited to that, to a special class of preachers. But he says it's a gift that every Christian should be encouraged to seek. That is to seek to know what God is saying in situations, to be able to help and encourage fellow Christians with a word from God. I, I think it's a real challenge to us, especially in a big church like this where most things tend to happen fairly publicly. But that's why we have small groups around the city that meet together to study God's word. And it's a wonderful thing when some, someone comes alongside you and gives you a particular word from God that addresses your situation, that helps you in your particular need. Maybe they don't even understand and they say, I feel the Lord has given me something to say to you at this time that, that may help you. If you're a Christian, you should know about this. If you're a Christian who's living in God's word, in touch with God's spirit, why not ask the Lord, say, Lord, I'd like to be that kind of person who could help other Christians, who could speak your word into a situation. And so often as Christians, we look at things on a purely secular level. And then we read a verse of the Bible at the end and go home. No, everything is saturated by the Word of God that speaks to us in our different situations. Michael Green defines prophecy as a word from the Lord through a member of the body, inspired by His Spirit, and given to build up the rest of the church. And how we need people like that. Yet how often, like the Corinthians all those years ago, people look for the most spectacular things not least the gift of tongues. Now you might think at this point that Paul would then move on to his next subject and decry the use of tongues altogether and say, look, just cut it out, you Corinthians. But let's be honest, he does not say so. Instead he says, verse 13, for this reason, anyone who speaks in a tongue should pray that he may interpret what he says. Or maybe that someone else would interpret what he said. So he's saying, if you do speak in a tongue, it must be interpreted. And in this case, speaking in a tongue with interpretation has the same effect as speaking prophetically, that is, speaking God's word in a situation. The only difference, really, is that uh, what is addressed in a tongue is speaking to God in prayer and praise. What is addressed in a prophecy is speaking to God's people on the horizontal level. However, if he says, if there is no interpretation, then the person who prays in a tongue is only engaging his spirit rather than his mind as he prays and sings praises to God. I think most of us in our society, in our educational background, are fairly cerebral. You know, everything goes to the cortex of the brain. But we're also spiritual beings. Maybe it's just me, but I, I think there are times when you commune with God on a deeper level than the purely... I don't mean it's irrational, don't misunderstand what I'm saying. But there is a deeper level where we commune with God. Have you never, if you're a Christian, have you never spent time with God where your heart is moved and, and somehow it's just something, I can't even describe it because it's so different, but it's speaking spirit to spirit with God. Have you listened to some music or you listen, sometimes I'm, I put a tape on in the car and I'm driving somewhere to a worship tape and I'm, I'm just, you know, singing away there, you know. I'm not probably driving very well, but I'm, you know. 
It's that joy of the Lord within that communicates with him. Paul says it's better to, within the congregation, to exercise both spirit and mind in praying and praising God using intelligible language, or use intelligible language for prayer and praise to God. And the reason for this, he says, is that when you've done that, at the end of it, everybody can say, Amen. See, you're speaking to God or praising God for who he is. Or you're asking God to do something. Now, if you do it in a language that no one understands, you can't really, in honesty, say, Amen. Amen is a word, for those who don't know, Amen is the word we say at the end of prayers. All right? It's a Hebrew word. It literally means, let it be established. Let it be so. If you want a colloquial way, when you say Amen, you're saying, Yes! That's it. Let it be. Now, if you don't understand what I'm praying about, and I'm praying in another language, there's no way you can say, yes. You might say, maybe. Or, perhaps. Or, I don't really know what he said. All right? So, Paul says, when you meet together, it's important that people understand what you're saying. And then they can praise God with you, and they can say, yes, Lord, do that. What that person prayed for. Yes. When that person praises God for who he is, you say, Amen, that's true. Right on. And then, if you look at the text in front of us, and we're making our way through it, we're getting there. To our surprise, and probably to the Corinthians' surprise, Paul gives us a rare glimpse into his own devotional life. His personal life. Because suddenly he says something quite interesting. He says, my experience is, he says, I thank God that I speak in tongues more than any of you. Now, if you think tongues is a real language, what Paul must be saying here then is he's a multilinguist more than any of the Corinthians. I don't think he's saying that. He's saying that he uses, in fact, the expression in the original means, not different languages, but the use of this particular gift. But he adds his preference. He says, I thank God that I speak more in tongues than any of you, but in the church... I would rather speak five intelligible words to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. Verse 19. Now, if this is the case, when and where does Paul exercise this gift of tongues? Many have concluded from this and the preceding verses, where he talks about worshipping God with his spirit, that he's referring to what some people call the private use of tongues. His emphasis here is, I'd rather speak five intelligible words and 10,000 words in the church. But in private, maybe, he uses the gift of tongues as a means of praying and praising God in spirit with the help of the Holy Spirit. Maybe that's what he means in Romans 8.26 when he says sometimes we don't know what to pray for and how to pray, but the Holy Spirit intercedes for us with groans that words cannot express. And all I can say is that many Christians have testified to such a gift. And if this is so, perhaps this is why Paul says, again in verse 5, I'd like every one of you to speak in tongues. Not that he expects this to be the case. He uses the same expression in chapter 7 when talking about singleness and celibacy. He says, I, I, wish, I wish that every one of you were like me. He's not expecting everyone to be single. Yet he goes on to say, I would rather have you prophesy, for prophecy builds up the church in a way that tongues does not. 
It is of great benefit for believers because they're built up. It is the supreme use of the way of love. It's applying the principle of 1 Corinthians 13 in 1 Corinthians 14 to the use of gifts. So that's the first benefit then. Believers are built up. Here's the second one, which we'll take a little more quickly in the last few verses. The second benefit is that unbelievers are challenged. The second benefit of prophecy over tongues. We don't actually have a lot of information about what exactly went on in the early churches in the New Testament. We know from contemporary records that they used to meet on the Lord's Day, usually before dawn, because they worked on what was Sunday. And they used to meet together. We know that they met in homes, that they broke bread together and drank wine, remembering the Lord Jesus Christ. But 1 Corinthians 14 reveals something quite interesting, which you can overlook and assume is, you know, just, it's just there. What 1 Corinthians 14 tells us is that their meetings were open to other people who wanted to walk in and see what was happening. Notice what it says? They're not close to outsiders. He says, there are those who do not understand. Uh, perhaps those who want to know more. The NIV has put a footnote saying, inquirers, I guess we'd call them seekers. Along with those who are described as unbelievers. Literally those who have no faith at all. And Paul says, here are you Christians, you're meeting together, the door's wide open, anyone can come in, they're welcome to take part. And what happens if these unbelievers come in and everybody is speaking in tongues? What will the effect be on those who come in? Now here's some tricky verses. I wonder if you notice this. On the one hand, he says that tongues are a sign for believers. Not for believers, but for unbelievers. But then he goes on to say in the rest of the passage that speaking in tongues, if an outsider comes in, they'll think you're crazy and it's a bad thing for them. You're better speaking in a plain language. So what does he mean in this very tricky verse 22? Obviously Paul doesn't, he's not going to contradict himself within three verses, is he? Or a few sentences. It's clear that his main argument is that tongues have a detrimental effect on outsiders. So what does verse 22 mean? Tongues then are a sign not for believers but for unbelievers. Prophecy, however, is for believers, not for unbelievers. Well, the answer is found, look at the text in front of us, this is the difficult bit to understand, in the preceding verses where Paul quotes from the law. See what he says? He says, in the law, verse 21, it is written, the law here includes all the Hebrew scriptures because he quotes from the book of Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah. Through men of strange tongues and through the lips of foreigners, I'll speak to this people, but even then they'll not listen to me, says the Lord. The background is this. You need to know the background of the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah the prophet was speaking God's word to the people of Israel. The people of Israel said, you're treating us like children because you're making it so simple. We need something more profound from the Lord. This also goes back to him talking about them being like children. You can read this back in Isaiah 28. We don't have time to look at it. So through the prophet, the Lord says to the people of Israel, okay, you don't want to hear God's word because it's so straightforward and simple. Okay, I'm going to send some foreigners who will invade your country. This happened with the Assyrian army. And they'll speak a language that you don't understand anything of at all. And then it will be too late to repent and too late to hear God's word. 
like the person who hears a fire alarm and can't understand what it means. And what he's saying here, the word sign here, tongues then are a sign, he's saying that for the unbeliever, tongues are a sign of judgment. Because if they hear even God's word spoken in a tongue and don't understand it, it's too late. They'll never repent. They'll never come to faith in Christ. Tongues are a sign of judgment. And when they come in, moreover, they won't say, gosh, this must be important, I'd like to try and understand it. They'll say, listen to those people. They're babbling away in this la- these languages. They're mad. They're out of their minds. And the result will be that for unbelievers, tongues will be a sign of God's judgment. They'll no longer be able to understand. For the believer, of course, tongues are not a sign of God's judgment. They know and, re- and receive the message of Christ. But the Corinthians, by childishly thinking that tongues were for believers, the Corinthians were saying, Tongues are for believers. That's the sign you've really alive, uh, arrived. You're speaking the language of heaven. By insisting on this and speaking in tongues in their meetings together, they were preventing unbelievers from hearing the message of Christ and believing in, he- in him. They were condemning them to judgment because they couldn't understand what God wanted to say to them about repentance and faith in Christ. And Paul says to them here, grow up. Don't be so childish. Focus on prophecy rather than tongues. For it has the opposite effect. If you speak in an intelligible way and proclaim God's word clearly, and an unbeliever or an inquirer comes in, they'll be able to understand what God is saying to them. And he says two things will happen. For the unbeliever, prophecy will lead to the conviction of sin. The word convince or convict in verse 24 is the same word used in the Gospels when John the Baptist rebuked or convicted Herod of the sin of taking his brother's wife. It's the same word used that Jesus used in John 16 when he said, when the Holy Spirit comes, he will convict or convince the world of sin, of righteousness, of judgment to come. Now, the Holy Spirit takes God's word so that when the unbeliever comes in, he hears what God is saying to him And God, through his word, exposes his sin, the inner secrets of his own heart. And he's convicted of his sin. The unbeliever's sin is exposed. The secrets of his heart are laid bare before God. All I can say myself, and who am I, but uh, I cannot tell you the number of times I've stood at the door in church and people have come up to me and said, I'm really angry with my friend who brought me along this evening because he's obviously briefed you all about me this evening and that's why you preached against me. And I say to them, I don't know anything about you. God is speaking to you. It's the wonderful thing. God can take the same word spoken in the power of his spirit to convict people of their sin. The result is the conversion of the sinner. That's what it's all about. His sin exposed by God, he will fall down and worship God and say, God is really among you. So prophecy is for the believer, for it leads to belief, to repentance and faith in Jesus, rather than tongues, which leads to God's judgment. What a contrasting effect. Once again, to follow the way of love is to seek that which will benefit those coming in from outside. Now, this raises huge questions that I want you to think about, and I'm just leaving them with you, about what we do in church. 
it's vitally important that what we do is understandable to those who come in. We may not speak a different foreign language, but believe me, for many people, the language of Zion is a foreign language. And what we do in church should be transparent and open to those who come in and our great goal and aim, and my great goal and aim, is that people coming in hear God's word and the most important thing of all is that they say, surely God is among you. And that God brings people to repentance and faith in his son Jesus. The test, the final test is this. What does the unbelievers say about our services? Do they say, you are mad? Or do they say, God is really among you? Now there's some very strange things been going on in Christian circles over the past few years. And I tell you this, whatever you think about them, if someone comes into a service of God's people and sees everybody rolling on the floor laughing and making animal noises, most people are going to say, you are mad. What they need to hear is God's word, his powerful word, speaking to them intelligibly by the Holy Spirit, so they say, surely God is among you, and they're converted and brought to faith in Christ. And that is the challenge for every church, for every group of Christians meeting together in the name of Jesus. And we need to apply that in our church life and we'll be thinking, God willing, in our next study in a couple of weeks about how that's put into practice within a local congregation. Well, let's sing a hymn.